0: My guest today, Lauren Wolf, is an award-winning journalist who covers sexual violence in conflict. She's the director of the Women Under Siege Project, which is a journalistic endeavor founded by Gloria Steinem to investigate how rape and gender-based violence are used as tools of conflict. About a week before we spoke, Lauren wrote an article in The Guardian about a Congolese militia that terrorized a small town in the eastern part of the country by systematically raping babies and toddlers. A day after the publication of this article, the militia leader was arrested and we kick off discussing that story. Lauren has spent the better part of her career in journalism reporting on trauma. Among other stories, she covered 9-11 and its aftermath for the New York Times. And Lauren opens up in a pretty profound way about why she feels so compelled to cover these kinds of stories. This is a pretty heavy episode, though not without moments of humor, and I so thank Lauren for being so open and honest with me and, and, and with all of you, and it was just a real honor to, to speak with her. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We publish these kinds of in-depth conversations with journalists, think tank leaders, policymakers, all involved in the field of foreign affairs every Monday, And every Thursday, we post shorter, topical conversations about something in the news with a a journalist or think tank expert. And you can find it all on globaldispatchespodcast.com, or you can also subscribe on iTunes or get our app for free or click the little contact button to get in touch with me. And now here is journalist Lauren Wolf. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season 4 launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: He's actually a member of parliament, um, which is probably the most shocking thing about all of this. And um, he's been arrested along with 67 of his men in this militia he'd formed. Um, And they're being held on charges of rape, crimes against humanity, um, mounting an insurrection, and assassination of army members. And it's basically that they have been raping tiny little girls age 18 months to 11 years old for the past three years. And no one, no one has known who's doing this um, until the last number of months.
0: And how did you come to this story?
1: Right. I was in DRC a few years ago, maybe two, three years ago. I was with the Nobel Women's Initiative and they do these incredible uh, trips where they take journalists and activists and we were talking to rape survivors and there were some local NGO and international NGO people in the room we'd been in for quite a while, you know, basically a whole day. And one of them sort of whispered to me that there had been these babies raped, um, So this was, yeah, two and a half years ago, because as of this month, it's been three years. So I heard about it a while back, and I kind of couldn't get it out of my head. What she told me was really disturbing. It's not just that they're being raped, which would be awful enough, but that there are men coming in the middle of the night in this very poor village called Kavumu. They're somehow getting into the houses without waking anyone, which is shocking because these are wood or mud shacks with... You know, usually two adults, as many as eight or 10 children, and no one wakes up. And they take this one tiny little girl, they gang rape her, and then they leave her in this field or they return her to her house. So no one could understand how nobody was waking up. No one was quite understanding how they got in and out of the houses, why they were doing this, and who they were. So I, you know, I felt like. For such vulnerable kids in one of the poorest places on earth, to to have no one paying attention to them, it basically just kept me up at night. So I just kind of couldn't couldn't let it go. And
0: and, and so is the implication that um, these groups were like using some sort of drug on the houses to keep people asleep while they snatched babies at night.
1: This is um, a country or at least uh, especially a part of the country where people believe in witchcraft, you know, the way we believe in, um, you know, Obama is our president. You know, it's really, really common. Nobody questions it. And. I had people telling me, you know, we think that they're raping the girls because it will give them red diamonds, you know, some sort of riches, or it will protect them in battle. Everyone just had these kind of sorcery theories. And on top of it, they they kept saying that a magic powder was being sprinkled around their houses to keep them asleep. So I went back uh, in December and January this year and... As I kind of went into my investigation, I started wondering, isn't it entirely possible in this incredibly fertile country that there is some sort of powder being made from actual plants? And it turned out that there is. Um, I don't know yet what it consists of, but, but I just actually confirmed last night that the man who makes the powder is one of the men who's currently under arrest.
0: Uh, okay, so there there was a, a drug then. Uh, so you you suggested earlier that the the motivation was sort of rooted in, in witchcraft and, and sorcery, um, but there or- like a like a strategic logic to this, like to these crimes.
1: In Congo, anyone who wants to gain some sort of power basically can form his own militia. And this happens weirdly frequently. There are hundreds of militia groups. And the local ones are known as Mai Mai. And that literally means water, water. It means that bullets can pass through like water. That's part of the witchcraft belief. Um, The raping of these virgin girls, it does turn out that is part, you know, that is the motivation and there has been a correlation between fights of this militia with the Congolese army after there's a rape. So basically, you can sort of see that they're using that to empower themselves and then go into battle. Um, when, what's so upsetting and fascinating about this case is that this is a politician. So I started looking into whether the Actually, the, the thing that's been most upsetting is how long it's taken to arrest this man. I was able to put together who he was when I was there back in December and January. And yet 99% of the people there still didn't know who it was, um, which I found very strange. But I also think it's incredibly dangerous when you live in that country to poke around too much. So once I realized he was a politician, I started wondering, okay, well, are they going to arrest him? And if not, why aren't they arresting him? Once I found out that the government actually knew who he was as well. So I was I came home and I started waiting for these arrests to happen. I thought, well, they know who the guy is, so they're going to pick him up. But months went by, five months went by, and I kept asking why he wasn't being arrested. And I would hear things like, well, the warrants have been issued. And then, no, they haven't been issued. The jurisdiction is switching from civilian to military justice. There just were so many excuses. Even the prosecutor is too busy. Um, (laughs) So at that point, I started wondering, is there some sort of political motivation to not arresting him? And I quickly discovered that he is in the same political party as Lambert Membe, who is the Congolese communications minister. And his party is an alliance in an alliance with Joseph Kabila's PPRD party.
0: And Joseph Kabila is the uh, the president of uh, of Congo.
1: And he's the president who doesn't want to let go of power come November. So mm-hmm. there's been a lot of protesting and violence. You know, he's had his two constitutionally allowable Terms, But he wants to hold on for a third one. So he basically does have to keep his provincial deputies on his side and keep their allegiances. But, you know, so I had this kind of theory that maybe there's some sort of nefarious thing going on politically, and it is entirely possible. But a couple of my sources very much in the know, really prefer the theory that this has just been about complete incompetence a lack of funding to the investigation, and just your general, this is Congo, things do not run in any way smoothly. It's the opposite of anything running smoothly. Well, but then
0: you you published your piece in The Guardian on June 20th, and the next day, right, this guy was arrested?
1: Twelve hours later, yeah. It was shocking. What was um, that like?
0: How did you get the news that he was uh, arrested?
1: <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. I, I don't know um, if I really believe in uh, psychic powers but something woke me up at 3 a.m. and i checked my phone which I, I try not to do when i wake up in the middle of the night and i had a message from um one of the investigators that he had arrested these men and he said you can you can go ahead and write now it was a really powerful moment for me
0: well i mean that you can draw a direct line between your piece and the guardian and the rest of this like mass rapist leader i mean that's that's incredible.
1: It is. I actually spent the entire morning, that morning from, from that moment on, I didn't sleep after 3 a.m., but I spent a really long time trying to understand how this could have occurred so quickly because with all these delays with issuing these warrants, how, you know, was it even possible, you know, could this have been a coincidence because it seemed like they needed to have issued warrants, issued the warrants before you know 12 hours previous but then i i actually was told nope they were issued that evening um the arrests were made in the early morning so yeah i i really do think that the the government of congo is terrified of international media attention they're terrified of bad press
0: wow i mean so like how like like how did that sort of like make you, you feel as, as a journalist? I mean, to to have that kind of direct impact. I mean, that's usually, I mean, usually it's not quite as linear as as publishing a, a column in, in the newspaper and then seeing an outcome like hours later.
1: No, especially after nearly three years of watching and waiting and hoping and reporting, I think most journalists don't get to experience anything like this in their lifetimes. And I have been really shocked and amazed. But um, I thought, you know, if anything, I thought a few days would go by and then a a nasty press release would come out from the government. Um, Maybe it would provoke the hornet's nest a little bit. Because a previous piece I'd done in foreign policy about a year ago did concerned them enough that they announced they would do a national investigation into these rapes in Kuvumu. and and it was the fact that 6 months later there was no actual national investigation taking place that that pushed me to actually go back to the country um but the, the the funny thing was that whole next day I I was too surprised to actually understand what had happened but but the the funny part was I actually felt really sad all day and I couldn't stop thinking about the little girls. Since I had left the country in January, four more of these girls had been abducted and gang raped. And when I was there, I met probably 12 of them, uh, three of them in the hospital, one three-year-old who had been raped the morning I arrived, um, a five- and a six-year-old, and then a bunch of the girls back in their village with their parents. And I met a lot of them. And they are really dead in their eyes. They're still in pain, even if their rapes were two years ago. The parents are still terrified. And I just couldn't help thinking how needless all this violence has been.
0: Uh, That's horrible. I'm sorry, I have like a three-year-old daughter. This is like hurting me a little. Um, Yeah,
1: people keep telling me that. and I I don't have kids, but I, I, meeting these girls, you just want to protect each and every one of them. And it's... It's really, really painful to listen to their stories. And, you know, some really great things have actually come out of this also uh, that I haven't talked about. But I've had readers from around the world writing and asking what they can do. So I've been telling people you can donate to this great Spanish organization called Copera that does therapy with the girls and their families. But one of the things I kept hearing, they kind of interrupted me throughout the day I spent with them. The girls and their parents kept saying, can you help us make our houses safer? They just want locks on their doors. So one woman actually wrote to me last week and and said she wants to make a sizable donation to these families. And she didn't care what it was for as long as it went to the families, whether it was therapy for medical care, clothing, whatever. And I told her this thing about the locks. So she says that she's going to make that happen. So, you know, fingers crossed but it would be just incredible.
0: Um, So I'd love to switch gears a little bit and learn a little bit more about like how you got – Interested in these issues? How you got interested in, in journalism? Um, you know, we've never met. I, I really know very little about you, so I'm interested to, <laughs> to learn uh, more about your your background. So, where where are you from? Where were you born?
1: I'm from New York, I'm about 20 minutes outside the city. Um, I've been Which in New York direction? York? South uh, or I- north? Long Island direction? Long Island. Okay. <laughs> East. East. Okay. And I've lived in New York my whole life, except when I've lived abroad in Italy, um, basically. What so, did your uh,
0: your parents do? Were they into journalism or into these issues?
1: Nope. My father, for 40 years, uh, designed and sold corrugated packaging. He had a factory with his brother. Their company had a factory in Long Island City. So I kind of grew up. Going to that factory when Long Island City was super, super industrial. You know, we'd drive through Astoria, which was also industrial.
0: Yeah, before the hipsters moved in. Before Brooklyn got too before. expensive for them, yeah.
1: Long before. And my mother was a teacher who wasn't really working and was a really talented artist who also wasn't really painting. But when she did, it was pretty incredible.
0: Um. So uh, did you grow up in like a political uh, household? I mean, did you guys talk politics? No. Nope.
1: <laughs> okay. Actually, you know, it's funny. I, I actually grew up thinking I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be a physicist or an astronomer. You know, way up until college. And part of the reason I went to the university I did was because they had a fantastic astronomy program. And then I just very quickly turned to literature. And uh, where did
0: where did you go to school? Wesleyan. Oh well, that will turn like anyone into hippie. <laughs>
1: right. I know. The fact that I chose Wesleyan for science was, uh, you know, <laughs> it speaks volumes. <laughs>
0: No, I grew up in, in Connecticut, not too far from okay. from uh, Wesleyan. Okay, yeah. um, but you know its reputation is obviously <laughs> that of <laughs> a uh, of of a Hickby incubator. Yeah. Um, so so like how so so at Wesleyan, I mean, were you sort of politicized? I mean, I, uh, there have to, I have oh, to imagine. No, no. <laughs> no? okay, okay.
1: Well, oh, no, I'm not going to say no. I, I think that's I... impressive. I'm not going to say no, because I think my politics were already pretty ingrained. I think I've always been a pretty um, uh, uh, unable to handle intolerance. My father likes to say that 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 the only thing I'm intolerant of is intolerance. It's kind of a, a silly thing he's always said my whole life. But, you know, I won't say my household wasn't political. My father, you know, was very passionate about the news, but we didn't talk much about it. And he just loved to read and you know, he's a real, been a real mentor to me in his quiet, just kind of way of being. Um, and of course at Wesleyan, yeah, everything was sort of politicized. But mostly, I was interested in reading and and looking at texts and this <laughs> texts in a different sense back then, and looking at literature. Yeah. Um, and everything was sort of about uh, what, what is the word now? I'm even forgetting in the mid nineties when you went to Wesleyan, everything was about Foucault, Derrida. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, I have to imagine, I mean, most of what I know about Wesleyan in the mid nineties is from the film PCU. Um, right,
1: That that actually premiered. I think it was my senior year. So it was actually filmed like in the time I was <laughs> there.
0: <laughs> well, well, I mean, so I have to imagine though, that, that there is a, um, or there was like a, a pretty strong feminist presence on, on campus. I mean, did, did that sort of speak to you at all? No. <laughs> okay.
1: You know, it's funny. It's I mean, no, asked...
0: really interesting to me. Cause it's sort of usually like a time and and, and a place, particularly a school like that, that, that these kind of, you know, but yeah, but these then kind then of again, issues. Yeah. Sorry. But, go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, I was just going to say then again, I, I do think it was just so everything has just felt so part of who I am. You know, I'm not someone who went through those like, mm-hmm. phases of realizations, So I didn't take women's studies. I sort of regret that now. But also, I I just, I think feminism was a part of who I was without knowing it was feminism, equality, you know, always thinking about equality. Um, But it took me until the last number of years to even use the word feminist. Uh, You know, I grew up in a time where it was not actually considered a positive word, unfortunately. And again, I think we're seeing backlash. But now, of course, working for Gloria Steinem, it, it's a word that I very much embrace.
0: Um, so, so how then did you sort of, upon leaving Wesleyan, sort of you know, start to get into these issues, start to to pursue journalism, or what, or what did you end up doing?
1: Sure, I ended up working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and okay. <laughs> so I was working on children's books, thinking I wanted to go into publishing, but just writing, you know, writing, writing every day, every minute from college onward. I never didn't have a book to write in. And I spent a few years bouncing around, living in Italy, you know, working in different sort of publishing style jobs and trying to figure out how I was going to write. And I would just observe the world. But I was really, you know, like all young 20-somethings perhaps looking inward too much and and not understanding that I could just sort of reach out into the world and, and write about what I what, what was happening out there, that I didn't need my own stories I could kind of grab from other people's. Well, do
0: you remember a moment when that realization first hit you?
1: Um, I was working at Architecture Magazine when I decided to go to J School part-time. So I was at the Columbia J School. And it was really in that first semester, I, I was so terrified to pick up the phone and make reporting phone calls. I was just frightened. And I thought that I was a really good writer, but I didn't know how to be a reporter. So what I learned so quickly that semester was like, I was an okay writer, but that I actually had a real talent for reporting, for just talking to people and listening to them. And it felt so powerful to kind of be, be reaching out into the world, like I said, and and learning about people's lives. And and what I've learned over the years is journalism really is about learning as much as you can. And then communicating it to other people in a way that will make sense to them. So I think I've become sort of a translator. I think that's what journalism is in a lot of ways. And I I realized kind of in that first semester at J school that that was something I was passionate about and and could be pretty good at.
0: You know, it's funny. So I've been doing this podcast for a couple of years now. I did not go to to journalism school, but um, it was in through, I should say, through doing this podcast that I, I came to realize that sort of learning other people's stories can sort of be really sort of deeply meaningful uh, for me personally, but also for for an audience. Um, and in sort of this process of having these kinds of conversations um, unraveling and then having people sort of share their stories, their life stories, their life lessons, um, you could really sort of create meaningful content out of that. So I, I sort of definitely get what you're saying.
1: I was thinking a lot before we spoke about something I wanted to say um, along these lines. So just to quickly kind of move forward in the years. Um, So now, you know, um, working at the Women's Media Center and and running the Women Under Siege project, I I had spent years in journalism, as one editor put it, um, telling the stories that made people cry.
0: (laughs) Yeah, That's how we started this conversation. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm still doing it. (laughs) Um, I just really felt drawn to trauma stories and and making sure that those stories were heard, that those people weren't further silenced. So I, I was thinking before I spoke to you whether I wanted to kind of talk about where this came from. And I was thinking, you know, maybe it's useful to other people. I get young women basically every week contacting me asking, you know, how they can kind of have the career I have and can they take me out to coffee and I just, I love mentoring young journalists. So I, I think it would be important to kind of talk about why I do what I do and hopefully that that can be something younger journalists can kind of take in. I don't know. Um, but but people always ask why I do these terrible trauma stories, you know, how I handle it and all of that. and Outside of how I handle it, it really it stems from a childhood of witnessing some really terrible things. And my experience was that I tried to tell people about those things, about that violence, and nobody would
0: listen. You saw, so, you, you saw sexual violence as a child? No,
1: not sexual violence, just violence. Physical violence, emotional violence, verbal violence, a lot of, a lot of violence in, around my world. And the adults I would speak to didn't listen. They didn't pay any attention. And growing up, I, I think subtly that's what affected me the most, not being heard. And I have gone along in my career not knowing, you know, you don't always see what path you're taking, but it's finally hit me that that's the motivating force.
0: How, how did the violence that you witnessed sort of manifest itself?
1: I don't want to get into details, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But,
1: that... yeah, it just, it's, very, it's personal, but I feel like I'd like to share at least that idea. Mm-hmm. And for the women I write about now, and and men, I do write about men sometimes, the silencing and stigmatizing that they experience, the chance to to tell their stories, to let them be heard, you know, they want to be heard. And to give them that, that is so powerful to me. And if it can create change like it has in, in this one recent story, then that's even, of course, better. Uh,
0: do, do you know sort of when you were able to sort of trace that um, emotional connection from the violence you witnessed as a child to your drive and desire to report on, on uh, violence worldwide? I mean, when, when did, how did that re- realization come to you?
1: Um, I was in New York on September 11th. I witnessed the buildings falling. I was actually the the last stop in Brooklyn um, on the train and got out just in time for for the whole show. And I lost friends that day and suffered PTSD for, for a couple of years, I would say. But uh I also ended up working at the New York Times for three years, specifically on projects about September 11th. So I kind of, I, I realized at that point that I had run headlong into the thing that was so hard for me to handle. And I think it was just, I l- realized at that point that I was processing my own trauma by working and by hearing other people's stories and telling their stories. And, and that got me through it. And I think it made me an effective storyteller. You know, I think it could go either way. You could be so disabled by what you've experienced, or you can channel it and I feel so fortunate that I've found that that reporting and writing is is my
0: outlet um so what were those stories uh after after september eleventh like how did how did those stories how did you find those stories and and so what was that reporting project
1: it was an absolutely incredible few years. First, I worked on a book called City in the Sky. They were New York Times books. um, And that was about the conception to the fall of the Trade Center. So I interviewed ironworkers and firemen and, you know, some survivors, things like that. And I actually identified the one ironworker that I believe worked on both the construction and the cleanup. So that was a pretty incredible interview. Um, but then the next book was called 102 Minutes, and it, it was actually a National Book Award finalist. Um, and I worked with two fantastic reporters, Kevin Flynn and Jim Dwyer. And that was about that was a literal tick going through from the plane hitting to the fall of the second tower. And what we did was report out strings of stories of survivors, of victims, of the phone calls they made to their families, and really, just try to build timelines of certain people's experiences. And I learned so much in the course of that that reporting.
0: I mean, that that has to have been such like an emotionally difficult reporting project, too. I, I mean, I, I can imagine having you know the, the the spouses of survivors tell you about their last you know time they spoke to to their deceased spouse.
1: Yeah, but the funny thing is, again, they wanted to. T- They wanted those stories known. Um, There was one really fascinating thing that happened, and and I'm forever grateful for this lesson. Um, Jim Dwyer, the the amazing New York Times reporter, Jim Dwyer, Mm -hmm. he um, had asked me to kind of find out about this phone call that was made, or I guess it was just the the assignment was really find out about the, the last hour or so of this man's life on one of the top floors of the Trade Center. So I spoke to his Brother, I believe, and his or his wife. I think they might have both been on the phone, and they they were um, a religious Jewish family, and they said that the man had called and recited a, a Hebrew prayer, and they recited it for me, and it was an incredibly beautiful, moving prayer. You know, at a, an incredibly horrifying moment, and I went to Jim and I said, "Wow, this is an incredible story. This story of this prayer that was said on the phone to the whole family because they were all picking up on different extensions." And he looked at me and he said, it is a really beautiful story. And I'm not sure we should believe it. And that that just really shocked me because I was willing to just sort of say, well, you know, of course that's true. And he said, this is the thing. People want to remember things in certain ways. And you really, you're going to now need to to work at this from different directions and figure out if this really is what happened. Um, And it was a a kind of a reporter life changing moment to, to to learn from this master that even the most obvious thing should be approached with some skepticism. And in fact, it turned out in the end, he was right. It wasn't exactly as the family had told it to me. And I was able to confirm that through a family friend who was also on the line.
0: Hmm, hmm. Um. So going from, from how long were you at the, the times for?
1: That was three years. Uh,
0: and what was your, your next, uh, so how did that change your career trajectory? I mean, having such a huge platform.
1: I, it was, the coolest thing on earth just to be able to pick up the phone and say I'm calling from the New York Times because everyone takes your call. <laughs> so after that, you know, I guess things went a little downhill. But <laughs> yeah.
0: S- same with UN Dispatch, I
1: know. Right. Not not in a personal Get the sense, president but, on the line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I went on to work at the Committee to Protect Journalists. So I actually okay. sort of did a little bit of a pivot and did some advocacy, which I think still informs my reporting, but I was the, the senior editor there. Um, and the culmination of my almost five years there was doing a report about sexual violence and journalists that was actually um, inspired by what happened to Lara Logan in Tahrir Square. Mm-hmm. She was one of our board members and we heard about this really quickly after it happened. And I knew Lara and I, you know, we were all devastated so, I was looking into what CPJ had covered on sexual violence because every day as an editor there, I was writing and, and editing stories about uh, physical violence, jailings, beatings, um, everything that could be done to the press. Except I'd never heard a story about rape until Lara. So, it turned out we had a couple cases on file. Um, you know, the, the famous story of Geneth Bedoya in Colombia.
0: Um, uh, I don't know that story.
1: Yeah, so she had been reporting, and I'm thinking this is maybe 15 years ago now, she was reporting on, I believe, and I'm going to get it wrong, corruption at a prison, and she was kidnapped and gang raped and left by the side of a road, and she became a crusader against sexual violence in her country. She's a powerful activist at this point, very powerful. So beyond that though we had just really a handful of cases and I was told behind the scenes you know we have more than that we just never made them public because journalists didn't want them made public. So it kind of got set me off thinking you know how much is this really going on and and why
0: don't we talk about it. Well why wouldn't journalists want this to be made public?
1: Right. So in in the course of my reporting I spoke to some women who had been raped decades before, you know some really established well-known women in in the field. Who said that they've never made it public, they wouldn't let me make it public, and they said that they don't think they would have gotten where they are in their careers if it had been known
0: like they they would have been sort of um, stigmatized in some way
1: side-lined. sidelined you know you're you're not going to be sent back out into the field if you were raped while in the field, women mm-hmm. are too weak they you know they're they're too easily targeted but but the funny thing is, like I said, every day I was publishing stories about male journalists having their fingers cut off and, you know, being yeah. terribly beaten. So it's it's just different risks. And I've also now written about male journalists. I met a couple who've been sexually violated as well. It's not just female journalists. Of course, the majority are. But but I think people do this terrible thing where they decide, oh, the risk is too great for women. But it, but really, the, the risk is just different from what i've seen
0: you know i i've interviewed a, a number of, of female journalists for this podcast and and that issue has not come up but what does come up often is is sexual harassment at the workplace
1: mm-hmm. um which
0: is sort of like the, the the flip side of this
1: yeah and i heard about that too i talked to about 50 women reporters around the world both foreign correspondents and local and i heard multiple stories of sexual harassment, but also sexual assault by colleagues while they're in the field. You know, say they're the only two reporters from their outlet in Burma and one is, you know, one attacks the other. Well, you know, you're sort of stuck. And, and I heard stories like that. And then I even heard worse where the outlet would bring the woman in, you know, bring her home, but let the man stay out in the field. But then I also certainly heard about tons of newsroom harassment. I think that that's just kind of an ongoing thread that, that we have not been able to figure out in journalism, you know, or, or in the world, but, <laughs> but in newsrooms as well. It's a very male-dominated kind of feeling
0: place. So all, all this research, all this reporting culminated in, in a report you put together for the Committee to Protect Journalists?
1: Yeah, it was called The Silencing Crime, again, going back to that kind of stigmatization. And after that came out, I was being asked to do media, so I'd go on TV. So I was on CNNI and PBS NewsHour, and I'd had no media training and didn't know what I was doing. But I knew there was a place called the Women's Media Center that gave training to women journalists. So I contacted them, and they let me into the next class, and, and that was really life-changing, kind of figuring out how to own the expertise you have and speak in you know on television without collapsing out of with nerves <laughs> do, do you um, think the, yeah.
0: the the idea of like owning the expertise that you have is uh, that sort of women in particular are sort of conditioned to downplay that in a way
1: i think it's a very deep deeply conditioned without us even knowing certainly and one of the things that i learned in those few days was You know, look at male pundits, they go on and they may not be experts in, you know, the Venezuelan economy collapse, but they're willing to say something, you know, you too have knowledge and you too can say something. And it was very powerful for me, uh, that program.
0: Um, And so what having, having sort of written that report and having, having conducted that program. So what was next for you?
1: Well, I was in touch with the Women's Media Center president, Julie Burton, who's now my boss, um, and she and I talked about the fact that, that Gloria Steinem had been working for a year or so on an idea, a project that didn't have a name but had some different events attached to it already, about sexual violence and conflict just the idea that it actually came for her out of a book about sexual violence against Jewish women in the Holocaust. And she hadn't known that history. And she just kept saying, if we had known that, could we have stopped what later happened in Rwanda or Bosnia or wherever? So if we can kind of build some sort of knowledge base, will this be helpful? And I was hired to uh, work and, and sort of design the online portion, which became Women Under Siege. And
0: what was it Can I ask what was it like meeting Gloria Steinem for the first time?
1: Oh, it was terrifying. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: what was what was that encounter like?
1: I'm trying to remember if the first time I met Gloria was also the first time I met Jane Fonda and <laughs> and Robin Morgan. And it was all at Gloria's house. and I was asked to come to the to the meeting with some ideas and present them. Um, and there's really nothing like sitting across from her and and Jane and Robin, who are the founders of the Women's Media Center, Um, you know, and that first time just being in Gloria's beautiful house with her thousands of books and and all the the different things she's picked up on her travels. But I swear to you, I've never met a warmer human being in my life. She has been an incredible mentor along the way. She started emailing me kind of early on, and I would just wake up with these missives from Gloria on my email, and I just still would just wake up in shock every day (laughs) Um, but I've been with her at fundraisers and and just watched her give her undivided attention into into the you know wee hours of the night you know at 10 o'clock at night when I know not we, but like after many many hours of talking to people and shaking hands she is never tired she just keeps going she's now I think 82 81 and she has more energy than I, I can ever
0: imagine. So, um, in that in that first meeting at her at her at our, at her house, Amanda, you were asking to ideas for what would what become the Women Under Siege program.
1: Well, it was already a project in existence. Um, they had held um, let's see, they had held panels and done a couple of events. So I wasn't part of any of that, but I. They wanted me to just prepare a little bit of information about different conflicts. And, you know, I kind of came up with the structure of uh, with a journalism background, wanting this to be a, a clear site for like as a journalism repository on this subject. And I have been very privileged, like I said, to have Julie Burton as my boss because she has given me the means and the space necessary to really figure out how this could work. Um, and working with Robin Morgan, who is the former editor of Ms. Magazine and just a very well-known feminist activist journalist, powerful powerhouse, she too has just been an incredible mentor. And and I never had women like this in my life. You know, journalism is so male, and and to work with basically all women and such powerful women, women, it's been really life changing.
0: Um, so, what can you, I guess, talk a little bit for those who are unaware, what Women Under Siege is, is all about and how you guys operate, what you, what you do.
1: Sure, it's I well, like I said, it's a journalism project, and we have a blog that has articles on it by famous journalists, not famous journalists, uh, people who work at NGOs who are in the field, and part of the site is also a series of what I call conflict post- profiles sorry, conflict profiles. And they range from the rape of Nanking up to what's going on in Mexico, which you could argue is a country at war with women and the drug war um, and what happened in Libya and Egypt. And what we did was we created these long form sort of analyses looking at why sexualized violence is used as a tool of war, what the patterns are, what the numbers are of women being raped, um, the legal precedents being set. So it's become kind of a research tool that I'm very proud of that, that certain universities have used, journalists have used. And there's a whole section on the site that are just witness statements that have been amalgamated from various sources. And I, we do journalism about this particular issue. But, but there's an interesting kind of side note that comes with doing journalism on something like rape and conflict Um, Every time I speak on a panel, and I've been talking a lot about this with my journalist friends, I get called an activist. And it's a bizarre situation for me because the site is journalism. Uh, And my new theory is that men don't get called activists when they report on human rights, but women do. and, And my friends are confirming this as well.
0: Yeah, like men are the investigative reporters, uh, women are, are activists, or, or even worse, in, in a lot of cases, like women are, I know, in like the publishing industry, as, as I'm sure you do, like women uh, are often asked to become memoirists, as what? opposed oh, to investigative reporters.
1: <laughs> there was a great article in the New Republic, I think, about this, the woman who wrote about her investigations in Korea over 10 years, and that her publisher argued with her that it had to be labeled a memoir. I just
0: read this. Yesterday. Yeah, it, it happens yeah. so often. And, and or, or they're asked to write, even if, if they already write in, in first person as just like a narrative tool, um, they're asked to like more often, you know, discuss their own kind of personal experiences more than mm-hmm. say a, a, a men would. But yeah, it's like the, the memoirization of female journalism is like an, definitely mm-hmm. an ongoing problem, I'd say.
1: For sure. It's um, been so, I'm sorry, go
0: ahead. Well, well uh, on this subject of, of, of sexual violence and topic, I mean, looking at it like over the long term, I mean, do you? like how how are we trending i mean will sexualize will sexual violence in in conflict sort of go the way of like chemical warfare where there is this just like really strong taboo against it so its use is decreased significantly over time or is there something just like indelible to the human condition that rape and war have to go together always
1: there has been some really interesting work done by I think Dara Cohen and a few other uh, professors. Dara's at Harvard; her work is incredible. Looking at conflicts in which rape was not used as a weapon, and usually what that meant was the commanders basically trained their troops not to rape, and not only tra- not I'm sorry, not only train them, but basically told them, you know, ordered them to not do it instead of actually ordering them to do it. Of course, there's always going to be opportunism, there's going to be uh, cultural reasons, and I think that's that's the big thing to note here, that around the world, the reason rape is used in war really varies. In fact, for me, what kills me in the Syria war, having documented rape in Syria for a number of years, it is such an effective weapon of war because that society has this honor culture of women being so prized for their purity and it's such a misplaced identification of where a woman's value lies that by putting this kind of tremendous weight on her purity, rape becomes the most effective weapon you can possibly use. You you dehumanize you, you her, you humiliate her husband and her whole family and her community. Uh,
0: I, I guess one thing that's been... Sort of troubling me uh, about this this subject recently um, is you know I follow the UN pretty closely I follow UN peacekeeping and there have been a number of allegations of UN peacekeeping sexual uh, abuse particularly in the Central African Republic um, and you know these kind of allegations uh, you know are, are not new and a lot of the troops a lot of the countries from which the the uh, allegations occur the the, the troop contributing countries are from like sub-Saharan Africa like like from the Congo mm-hmm. or or. From from uh um, no, yeah Cameroon uh, mm-hmm. but also France you know and and uh-huh. where you would have a, you'd think a country with a sophisticated military where presumably soldiers are instructed not to rape uh still conduct it and and still can still still sort of commit those kinds of war crimes yeah
1: you know, Gloria has this concept she calls the cult of masculinity. And the idea being that when masses of men get together and sort of violence comes about, that they're more likely to participate in it. And I believe this, you know, whether it's in a warfare situation, or if you're thinking about sort of gang violence, maybe on the streets of London, you can see how boys and men kind of exacerbate that within each other in certain situations. So possibly, I mean, I don't know the answer to why French troops are raping and exploiting little girls across the world, but uh, maybe that's part of it.
0: Um, So, so we just have a a few minutes left. What, Mm -hmm. what's next uh, for you? Like what, what other projects are you working on?
1: Well, women under siege is really ever evolving and I'm trying to um, continue pushing that forward. I, I just think it's such a dynamic project and we have so much going on and when I say we the very tiny we of the team of us um, beyond that I'm heading to Greece actually in a few weeks to report on refugees and last summer I was in Italy and Sicily and Lampedusa reporting on refugees, women refugees. So mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of continue that this year. Um, I certainly would love to go back to Congo, but I'm sort of guessing at this point I'm banned from the country, um, which I won't really know for sure until I apply for a visa. But um, that's kind of my assumption right now.
0: Um, well, thank you so much, Lauren. This was, this was great. This was really interesting.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for, for speaking openly and honestly, too. I, I really do appreciate that sure (laughs) all right thank you all for listening and a huge 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 thank you to Lauren for just opening up and and, and being so honest and and, uh, forthright and hopefully uh, her story will inspire you out there and it certainly has inspired me Um, I'm, I'm so looking forward to following her work in the future